This Short Code podcast is a proud member of the MedEd Media Network. Inspiration, information, and guidance on your journey to medical school and beyond at mededmedia.com. Meandering in the margins of medicine, it's the Short Code podcast. Weird news, fresh views, helpful clues, and interviews. By students, for students. Subscribe to our weekly show at theshortcoat.com. Welcome back to the Short Coat Podcast, a production of the University of Iowa Carver College of Medicine. I'm Dave Adler, but whatever. What is of greater significance are my co-hosts. Say hello, uh, Kelsey Adler. Hello. Levi Endelman. Hey. Lisa Weir. Hello, hello. Mark Terrell. Hey. And Laura Quast. Hi. So, short quotes, before we get started, I want to take a minute to recommend you listen to a particular episode of Ryan Gray's The Pre-Med Years, number 224. Uh, if you have doubts that you can accomplish this goal of becoming a doctor because of this, that, or the other thing, uh, his interview with Dr. Rebecca Young will, uh, I think, uh, give you some hope. Rebecca was a teen mom of three, got divorced while working her way through community college, uh, was discouraged from pursuing her career by those who uh, sort of doubted her potential. I mean, everything that could be seen as a detriment to her uh, ability to become a doctor happened. Head on over to iTunes or medicalschoolhq.net and show Rebecca and Ryan some love. It's uh, pretty inspirational. Okay, short coats. If you sense yet another presence I haven't mentioned yet, uh, well, I knew I couldn't fool you. Uh, joining us by internet is Shaughnessy Naughton, the founder of 314 Action, a nonprofit organization who's, uh, which champions... Uh, electing more leaders to the U.S. Senate, House, state, executive, legis legislative offices, wherever they are, um, who come from STEM backgrounds and promote the responsible use of data-driven, fact-based approaches in public policy. Welcome, Shaughnessy Naughton. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, I, I would like to start off today by um, get, giving some context here on what uh, you might be trying to work against. So I have here a clip of Louisiana State Senator Mike Walsworth in a hearing in 2012 on um, whether to repeal his state's laws that allow that still allow teachers to use supplemental materials in the science classroom that are critical of theories such as the theory of evolution and uh, global warming. Let's listen to that for a second. Okay. And then they take this group and they freeze it. And then they take this group and they freeze it. And then you can take all of them over time and compare them. And you can see how the E. coli have changed over time and how they evolved. But what's really interesting... They evolve into a person? No, they... they okay, they, I'm just asking how, how, how to get there. I'm just trying to figure out how to get there. But go ahead. I mean, so they change... Person. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, we can laugh about that. Um, but it's a it's this is the sort of thing I, I think you might be uh, maybe working against. Yes. And uh, actually, it hit a little closer to home than I was even expecting. I I live in suburban Philadelphia. And uh, f a few months ago, I opened the local paper and saw that the my local school district, the school district that I grew up in, was uh, the curriculum committee was meeting that evening to discuss taking climate change out of the curriculum. And the justification that the school board member was giving was that it was making children depressed to find out that polar bears were dying due to loss of habitat. 
And the solution to that would be to stop teaching about climate change. <laughs> yes, oh, and, wow. that is depressing. I mean, I'm going to give him that. Uh. <laughs> it is depressing, as is his solution. <laughs> um, and, and so, you know, a number of people organized really within a couple of hours to uh, attend the local school board meeting, uh, something that I think is often not on the, the radar of people and, and really needs to be because this isn't um, just in uh, far off places. It's, you know, right here and just outside of Philadelphia. Well, so I checked out the website for, for 314 Action. Um, and I got to say, I think it looks really good. Uh, something I liked that you make a big emphasis on is uh, avoiding politicizing science. And placing the emphasis instead on trying to engage scientists within politics. But I think that, um, I mean, even at least just from the words alone, that, that even just sounds like a fine line. Uh, are there any ways that like you explicitly try and avoid the pol um, politici uh, politicizing science? Well, I, I think that, um, you know, one of the one of the challenges that we're facing are um, you know, politicians have shown us that although science is above politics, that mm -hmm. politicians aren't ashamed to meddle in science, and uh, that is uh, that that is very dangerous. And you know, whether it's trying to silence certain academics because they don't like what they're researching or the results they uh, have, you know, or the conclusions they've made, mm -hmm. or um, it, you know, actually shutting down, you know, fields of research uh, through, you know, funding cuts. I, I think that um, the way to combat that is not to turn away. Uh, I think the way to combat that is to get more people with scientific training elected to office. Mm -hmm. So I have a follow-up question based on that. Um, I think I was reading online, and correct me if I'm wrong, but your group currently is only backing Democratic candidates, right? Yes. So I guess my question is, how is that not politicizing science? Well, um, we are involved in politics. Uh, so that is different than politicians being involved in science. Um, we, we are asking is people uh, with these STEM backgrounds to step up and run for office. And when we were putting this organization together, uh, you know, we had to think of what that was going to look like. And the reality is when you look at the platforms of the two parties, um, and especially on their stance on climate change, we did feel that we had to pick a team. So even if an individual Republican candidate is coming from a science background, um, you guys currently will not support that um, candidate? So we have a designated fund for uh, uh, where people can contribute to support Republican candidates that we will in turn support, uh, but it wouldn't come out of the general fund. And that's really just an acceptance of the reality, especially at the federal level, of where the two parties are. I understand that. Um, I guess my only counter to that would be that I feel that the way that politics are right now, the Democrats and the Republicans are so polarized right now that the only way to um, implement any change within the Republican Party is to kind of get more of the science background within the Republican Party to generate a change from within. Go do it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't disagree with you. I just don't see that as my as my role or the role of 314 Action. Okay, I can understand that. So does your group provide uh, financial support for scientists who are interested in running for office? Yeah, so we are involved uh, with 
candidates and campaigns from the very beginning. Uh, a few weeks ago, we held a candidate training, uh, which we are holding our next one in Washington, D.C. on April 20th. And we go over everything from how to put together uh, a campaign committee, a fundraising plan, a communications plan, how to organize your volunteers, um, and uh, you know e even the you know not very exciting but very important of filing the paperwork and and finding a compliance officer. Uh, and so we, we hold these. We also work with individual candidates to help them uh, get their teams in place and kind of help to peek behind the curtain as to, you know, what goes in, what's involved with setting up a campaign and running for office. A lot of people, um, you know, who have never done this before, and a lot of our candidates are coming from very far from the traditional political uh, uh, pipeline, uh, just don't even know where to start and don't realize the type of commitment running for an office like Congress is, where it really uh, is a full-time commitment mm -hmm. and not really one you can do with just 10 or 15 hours a week. But there are offices that you can run for that, that don't require that type of commitment. So in, term of, in terms of long-term development on this kind of project and this sort of um, initiative, has there been any consideration of maybe providing these sorts of workshops, maybe on a smaller scale for students that are in graduate school or undergrad even if they're studying science? Because this seems like such a very different world and an intimidating thing for someone like myself, for instance, and a lot of my friends who we are people of science, but we're just so far removed from the political world. Yeah. Um, so we did put the, the last training session is up on our website. Um, and so that's available to anybody who'd like to watch the webinars awesome. and we are uh, trying to hold more regional sessions because I think there's a benefit to being in a room with uh, you know a lot of other people with various backgrounds but all stem uh, you know science technology engineering and math backgrounds and you know listening to them and, and discussing with them you know with why they're thinking about doing this, or maybe they just want to help on somebody else's campaign, or you know how they could be of, of service in their communities. And um, we think having uh, being able to do that regionally is is going to really benefit everyone. Absolutely, yeah. I think my long-term goal in life, I could see myself potentially running for office. I have to convince some people that it's not going to ruin my life at some point. But I have to finish med school <laughs> and I have to finish residency and kind of get a career started before I can go off and do something else. So I can't really do anything right now. What kind of training or opportunities does your group offer for people who maybe can't run for office right now but still want to do something helpful? Uh, well, we are organizing, uh, in conjunction with our candidate training on April 20th, uh, we're organizing a training for activists and advocates uh, to uh, lay out exactly what, what you just said. How can you get involved if you know, you're not really ready to run yourself, but uh, you know, these issues of having a, a more pro-science agenda really at every level of government um, is important, and how can you... Uh, help to make that happen. So there are many levels at which people can can run for office. You mentioned um, you, you sort of alluded to that before. I assume that your focus isn't just on national politics. Um, Correct. Although, although that is an avenue, but I, I've heard it said that 
Um, sometimes it can be more effective to run locally, um, or at least uh, in, in state elections. Um, do, any, any thoughts about that? Yes, I, um, uh, we are actually making a concerted effort to get more people to run for their local school boards, uh, because that really uh, has, a, has a real influence on, on what our kids are, are being taught. Uh, so we have uh, been making that a push, as well as um, really all levels of, of government, I think, benefit by having people with diverse backgrounds. And currently, that's really not the case. I mean, if you, if you look at most of uh, the people running government at all levels, it's small business owners and, and attorneys, and they certainly have a perspective, but I think having physicians and engineers and uh, professors and teachers um, could bring a more collaborative approach to governing, as well as certainly a more fact-based approach that I think we desperately need. And, you know, with that, we have established over... 80 uh, university and college chapters of 314 Action. And we currently have in place, I think, about 25 states with state coordinators. Hmm. So as you talk to scientists about um, getting involved in politics, what kind of reaction do you, do you usually get? Uh, well, usually it's... You know, uh, lately it's been, I've been hearing from a lot of people, a lot of scientists saying, I never thought I would have run for office, but I can no longer just sign on to letters and petitions. I feel that I need to do something. And really, uh, this latest budget proposal put out by the Trump administration is just, um, you know, it's just a horrible attack on science. And, um, so you're you talking know, and, about and the uh, are you talking about the funding cuts? The uh, funding cuts. Yeah, yes. okay. These are the so these are the cuts that that threaten things like NIH funding and climate change research and and uh, our health. Our health <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly that. And, and that's really I mean, that's really part of our mission is conveying to people that science isn't just good for scientists. We all benefit by having clean water and air and medical advances and uh, new technology. And in order to achieve that, we need to make those basic investments, especially from the federal government. I, I totally agree with that. And, and not to come back to the, the point from earlier, but I feel like most people, and I think the previous administration is a good example of this, that have more democratic leanings or tend to associate themselves with the Democratic Party already are largely pro-science. And um, while they might themselves might not be scientists, uh, might act politically along the same lines. So wouldn't you think that there would be more value in actually targeting the Republican Party more and convincing these voters who are voting for Republican candidates of these things that you're saying about the value of science, the value of uh, education and... Um, Fact. And, and yeah, really appreciating facts. Well, uh, we are talking to those voters. Mm -hmm. um, we're just um, and, and uh, you know, I think there have been Republicans that have been great champions of right. NIH. I mean, Newt Gingrich uh, wanted to, to double the NIH budget. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think, when it, you know, when we're talking about public health, um, it's 
not a partisan issue, mm-hmm. uh, but I think the the priority of you know what these investments in science, you know the priority that they should be given. Um, uh, I think that 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 does need to be higher on the list. Mm-hmm. Um, with regards to uh, like you said, partisanship and uh, and public health research. Um, what are your thoughts on the uh, the current like the inability of the CDC to do uh, gun violence research due to uh, NRA lobbying? I I think it's reckless and irresponsible, and it's actually one of the um, points that we we do make on our website is the reason why we haven't funded uh, gun violence prevention at least from the CDC uh, is because of Congress, and that's something that could and should be overturned. When in the 1970s, we uh, made a national priority of reducing uh, highway deaths, and we got better seatbelts and safer cars and airbags uh, and fewer deaths. And we could be doing that same thing without infringing on anyone's Second Amendment right. But we need Congress to to act. That's such an interesting parallel that for some reason has not occurred to me before. Um, Your voice was actually raspy that day. I know. I'm uh, once again still that suffering really from my cold. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what do you? So, for scientists who want to get involved, what do you think the biggest hurdle is? Um, I think coming from non-political backgrounds can be a real challenge. Uh, when I ran for Congress myself, and um, you know, was lot didn't didn't come from a political background. I'm not an attorney, and um, you know, originally my uh, primary Democratic primary opponent was backed by the Democratic Committee, and so I was uh, locked out of a lot of traditional Democratic donors. Uh, and donor networks. And so what I did was reach out to people in the scientific community and tell them about myself and why I was running and, you know, what my values and priorities were and and got a lot of uh, support from them. And so part of what we're trying to do with 314 Action is is really uh, engage the scientific community to go beyond just uh, advocacy and actually step up and get involved in electoral politics. So the, the biggest hurdle is just understanding the system and understanding how it works? Is that what it's you're... It's understanding the system. It's it's fundraising is a big part of how you run campaigns. And, you know, that kind of makes sense because you could have the best candidate in the world, but if you don't have the resources to communicate, people aren't going to know who you are. Um, and having the, you know, um, even the, the networks to... To fundraise from. I mean, attorneys are very comfortable and uh, familiar with supporting political candidates. And I don't know if that same uh, familiarity exists in, uh, you know, physician circles or academics. Um, So I think just kind of getting familiar with the whole process can be a challenge, um, which is part of why we hold these trainings. Um, also, communication can be tricky. Uh, we see this often that politicians take advantage of the, um, you know, the fact that people with scientific training are, are pretty comfortable with uncertainty, whereas politicians love to talk in absolutes. And I think that can that can be a challenge as well. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. One of the the things that 
I find um, that <clears throat> I guess politicians maybe sometimes I don't know if prey on is the right word, but in science, our standing, our understanding of the word theory as opposed to yeah. the general public's understanding of the word theory. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and that's part of what we talk about in our communication section um, of the of the training is uh, language to understand that the general public, uh, you know, uses differently than you than you use in science. Yeah, you know, th this is something that actually doctors are very familiar with, I think, because they have to spend a lot of time considering how to communicate with their patients in ways that won't uh, confuse the heck out of them um, mm -hmm. or, or lead them to jump to conclusions or to things like that. Maybe maybe uh, physicians are um, are really well suited to being Our natural candidates for office. Who the heck knows, right? Well, you know, if you think about it, they, they probably are because a lot of them work in small businesses. Uh, well, some of them still do, right? Sure. Um, are pretty visible in their community as opposed to a researcher in a lab that, you know, would not have that type of visibility and have greater flexibility in their careers where they're not necessarily going to be punished by taking time off to run for office. <laughs> Well, <laughs> yeah. well, not in the way that, it, uh, that say an academic would be. Sure. So what is one of the most common reasons people or excuses, I suppose, people give for why they can't run for office? Um, and kind of how do you combat that? So I guess to kind of give you an idea of what I'm thinking, um, when I was younger in I don't know, junior high, high school or something, my dad was at one time toyed with uh, running for our local school board. And I grew up in very small town, Iowa, and my mom was a veterinarian and owned her own practice. And she was very much against the idea because she was like, oh, you're going to piss so many people off and I'll lose my entire practice, um, <laughs> which is actually somewhat of a valid concern. And how do you like, is that a, excuses like that that people give like, oh, I would love to, but I can't because X, Y or Z. And what are the ones you run up against the most? Um, well, usually, uh, at least at this stage, mostly the people are reaching out to us to say they do want to run. But, um, you know, one of the concerns is how is it going to affect my business and my family? Um, when you're running for something like Congress, um, you know, there, there's a financial side as well. I mean, if you're not working, presumably you're not getting a paycheck. Uh, so there are some legitimate uh, pushback that, that people have. Uh, if you have small kids, it's it's really hard. Um, I felt, I don't have children, but I have dogs, and I felt like they hated me <laughs> for <laughs> missing so much time. That That's definitely something that I hear. Um, and then for people... Uh, probably because of things like House of Cards and uh, popular television, you know, worry about, well, have I been perfect my entire life? And uh, I've got a newsflash. No one has. Oh, I have. Um, Don't worry about it. <laughs> uh, but that's not necessarily, you know, uh, something that you, you prevents you from running for office. Right across from me, Mark is sitting here as an MD, PhD, and that comes from this whole idea student. of <laughs> it's coming Sorry, along. A student. I just I think of everyone as just <laughs> one day. <laughs> yeah. But that the his ability to get involved in a program like that has been really very much facilitated by a call for more clinician scientists. And I wonder if we couldn't create a similar route of thinking for I don't want to say clinician advocate because advocate is not really a strong enough word for this. 
but something very similar where instead you can go ahead and get an MDJD and then really be in the position to both have the science and the polit- political vocabulary to do something about this. That mm-hmm. exists. Yeah, that's really yes, interesting. Iowa. Really? Yeah. Yeah, we actually have an MDJD program, which right, uh, so hasn't been... I don't think it's they been... They don't quite have the support that, yeah. that some MD-PhD programs I definitely have. see their availability, but mm-hmm. they're just not advertised, for lack of a better word, right. as something that's suited for this purpose, as an MDJ, or MD-PhD is, quote-unquote, advertised as something you know to become a clinician scientist. So maybe if we could get a little bit more marketing, I suppose, on mm-hmm. the idea. Yeah, no, I agree. It's somewhat of a marketing program. I mean, I have my MPH, and I actually frequently have been asked, oh, like, well, what are you going to do with both an MD and an MPH? How are you going to fully utilize both of them? You know, questioning whether it was worth the investment for me to get my MPH, which I fully believe it does. Mm-hmm. But I think the same argument comes up. People are like, well, you know, I have to pay for an extra two years of grad school, law school. It's not funded. Um, and I'm never going to really fully use either one of these careers. Um, and so I think it's a marketing issue because, yeah, maybe I won't be 100% a doctor and I'm not going to be at the same time 100% a public health thing, but I have a very unique view and a niche of how to merge those two, which is its own thing. And I think MDJD is the same way that people just don't quite understand where they're going to use it. Yeah, I mean, marketing is one aspect, but also just just vision too, because there's been That's a lot a of word. a lot a of physician scientists who yeah. have been very successful, and it's been very clear that you can you can discover um, very fundamental aspects about a disease that can help you cure it. The back and forth is very easy. I feel like that becomes less clear for the MDJD, but I think right. that it's, especially in the realm of policy, it could be incredibly valuable. I think that. There's just not quite enough examples that most people think of uh, to model their career after. Right. So I guess, so yeah, that could get into more space things. for it. Right. And I think it's important, too, to recognize that even though you might not be using the practical skills and knowledge that you did learn with an MD degree um, to do something like this, a lot of politics has to do with convincing people more than it has to do with actually being qualified. So, you know, to have Someone <laughs> <laughs> in particular that you're referencing, though. Uh, I, I won't say anything in particular, but just to have those credentials, really, is to give you the clout that you need. So even though you might not be practically using it, it is still very practically useful. Well, and even just perspective. I, I mean, you know, having somebody with a, a master's in public health in public office. I mean, think about how, uh, what type of perspective and priorities that brings. Absolutely. Yeah. And then too, like uh, we mentioned, a lot of politicians now are are grossly uh, lawyers and small business owners. I wonder if the same could apply to uh, the uh, like MD, MBA programs out there too, that are Mm -hmm. are teaching people the business side of things. Um, Because that, I feel like, those those programs often get a lot more transparency, or there's there's a lot more people that, that know about them or pursue them than say, uh, like like an MDJD, like we kind of just said, is they exist, but sometimes they're relatively unknown, and it's less of a time commitment for the students' part too. I mean, uh, I think at, here at Iowa we have an MD MBA program, and it's like maybe one extra year as opposed mm-hmm. to an entire right. an entire another doctoral degree. I guess maybe we've talked about it a little bit, but what we haven't really talked about much is the sort of distrust that um, people people in general have for science lately, it seems to me. Um, Certain people. Yeah, well, I you know, like, 
the people you're trying to counter, I guess. Well, that's a very <laughs> right. interesting point because I was wondering when Laura was asking her question earlier, you know, why only back um, one party and is that not politicizing science? I was wondering if that might actually just kind of bundle the distrust that, you know, one party might already have for another with you know, now extending that distrust and that name onto science well, itself. I, yeah, I, I mean, but I, I do suspect that there are ways to, to, to counter this. I mean, first and foremost, we have an education problem in the U.S., mm-hmm. I think. Um, yes. Yes, and it certainly seems like it. I, well, I mean, you know, and, and so, you know, when somebody seems to be talking above you above your head the the temptations to go well, okay professor you know there there is a distrust out there that that it, it is important to to um to also sort of because you can get people into office who are scientists but if people won't listen to them because they don't understand or they don't you know they're they're sort of ignorant of the principles of science or things like that that's also a thing that needs to be it's probably well, and I, I think I mean, I think we could do a better job of calling out politicians that misuse science. And this is done on <laughs> by politicians of all stripes. I yeah. mean, it's not just climate change that is uh, and, and people's, uh, you know, lack of knowledge about it. But it's nuclear weapons or nuclear energy or GMOs or vaccines, something that I'm sure, you know, mm-hmm. you've seen. Um, and I think we do need to do a better job of calling out politicians and and explaining things uh, to Americans uh, in a way that they can understand. Um, you know, I was I was watching the House Science Committee this week, and they held a hearing on climate change, and they brought in one uh, climate change scientist from the the mainstream and and three from outside of it. And I was thinking about in what other context would we ever do that? And particularly in medicine, if if your kid is is sick and you bring your kid to four different doctors and three of them tell you that, you know, you need to do X and one says, no, you can just put some uh, oil on it and it'll be fine. Who are you going to listen to? And I think that we have to do a better job of calling that out, that just because someone has a PhD or an MD doesn't necessarily make them um, an expert, but we should be listening to the scientific consensus on on issues. I, I think it's also worth noting that uh, you know there's a big misconception in society of what science actually is, and I think that the word is misused often because you know typically through school and our daily lives we think of things like you know the planets of the solar system or the cells in a plant. Uh, the, even the molecules within that cell. We, we think of these all as science, but th- that's not actually science. That's, that's just the physical world. That's the reality. That's the universe. Science itself is actually a thought process, a way of using logic to come to answers. And I think that a lot of people don't think about that. They think, of, oh, you know, our cell phone, that's technology, that's science. Like, no, it's actually science was the method that produced that technology. And I think a lot of people don't jump enough onto that train of thought to really understand how we come to these things. And that may at some level be um, contributing to this, this fundamental divide I think we're seeing. I also think, you know, we've been talking a lot about telling people or explaining to people. I think we need to remember the opposite, too. We really need to listen to the people who aren't scientists. They have concerns and 
they want to be heard as well. And just because they maybe don't understand the science, explaining to them why they are stupid or don't understand right. something is not the way to win them over. And they're not necessarily stupid people. I mean, mm-hmm. my dad's a farmer. He comes up with all sorts of terrible excuses for why climate change, you know, maybe isn't a thing. I'm like, dad, you're the one that's going to like really have a problem with this. (laughs) Um, You know, but listening to them because he has other concerns about, you know, the way like he can't afford to change his entire operation of farming necessarily on a dime. And that's what people are like, oh, you have to change, you know, everything in X, Y or Z. And, um, you know, listening to them and their concerns and kind of working with them to make small changes as well. Yeah, such a great point. We, We just have so much more in common than we all like remember <laughs> yeah because like you know we we in the scientific community are, are no strangers to skepticism but we need to welcome skepticism also from mm-hmm. the outside mm-hmm. and be able to explain our point either you know to dispel the skepticism or to confirm it you know mm-hmm. yeah and i i think um scientists taking a more visible role in their communities is is part of that and certainly part of what we're encouraging at 314 Action is that, you know, we need to make science more accessible and applicable to that farmer in Iowa mm-hmm. and to, you know, that that mom, you know, that wants a good education for her kids. And I think, um, you know, I, I think we do that by, by making it more visible. And, um, you know, even just what we've asked from some of our members is write a monthly paper on something interesting that uh, has come up in science that you think would be of value for your neighbors to know about. And we'll take care of submitting it to the local papers for you. Um, But I I think even just doing simple things like that uh, could, you know, dispel some of the the mystery um, that sometimes hampers uh, scientists from uh, explaining what they're doing. Start a podcast. <laughs> or start a podcast. There you go. Oh, well, it, you know, that one of the things that always uh, sort of concerns us here at the Short Coat is um, the quality of science reporting um, mm-hmm. in this country, which is frankly abysmal. That's mm-hmm. a whole nother ball game. Right it, there. Well, it, it is. It's but like I a think terrible game of telephone. It's, yeah. it, <laughs> Running a marathon is just bad for your kidneys. It's getting surgery. I, at each, at each uh, level, you lose something. Yeah. Uh, Sean, one of the things I, I enjoy doing is um, bringing to the show news articles that uh, I've read about in the week. And, and I have no science background formally. You know, I, I, I'm scientific only by osmosis because I hang out with these uh, wonderful people. <laughs> but, um, but... Uh, a friend of science. I'm a friend of science. <laughs> I'm a science ally. But, uh, you know, so I bring these articles and, you know, sometimes I believe them. Sometimes I... Personally, I believe and them. Sometimes, how could you not? And you then know? I sit down with these guys and they're like, mm, Dave, No. Uh, they're very friendly about it, but, but the, you know, they, they, they tell me, yeah, but there's this, and there's this other thing that they didn't talk about. And, and there's a logical fallacy here in, in what they're reporting and all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, oh, (laughs) okay. But I think that's something that science reporting doesn't do well. Um, and I would love to see, and I've, I think Mark has been in the room before when I've advocated that, you know, like science or scientists, when they uh, publish research, um, should be sort of obligated to like also explain that to people like me um, in a way that, you know, doesn't encourage things like, you know, oh, newest breakthrough in medicine, 
uh, eat acai berries or whatever, right. you know. That's, I think there need, definitely needs to be some solution. Whether that's it or not, I'm not sure. But I, I totally get where you're coming from. It's, again, I, a very subtle way of saying, Dave, I don't want to no, do no, 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 <laughs> no. No, no, I, I agree. I've thought a lot about this. Uh, I mean, that's probably the best thing that I can think of because it's, it's, you know, it's scientific reporters, while they have some background in science, they don't quite have as much background as the people doing the original research. And then mainstream media doesn't have quite as much background in the science reporting. So it kind of... I suspect that science diluted. reporters... I think... I suspect think science reporters any? are me. <laughs> They're people just like they very me. very well could be. Friends of science who have not a clue about how science <laughs> really works at its basic fundamental level. I do want to ask about... Um, so there is supposedly a body um, that is intended to advise politicians. The uh, National Academy of Sciences is one of their jobs, I think. Is that correct? Do you, any, does yeah. any? Yeah. So uh, has that become? Have, has their influence become less? Do you think? Um, I think that uh, you know it, the the attacks on science didn't start with the Trump administration. Mm, but, certainly not. Uh, they certainly have been amplified. Um, and, uh, you know, I think there is less of an emphasis on, on empirical facts with this administration. Um, and on listening to the scientists, uh, the Office of Technology is basically, um, you know, there's not many people left at it, mm. uh, which was an office that the Obama administration really relied on. And I think it, you know, I, I think it's a shame not just for science, but really for looking at the long-term future of the country. I mean, when you have somebody thinking about, uh, you know, what we should be you know, focusing on and thinking the long-term of of the implications of that, um, I, I think scientists are, are very good at doing that, especially when we're talking about science policy. And I, I, hope to see that office restaffed. So the EPA and NOAA were established under Richard Nixon, who was a Republican. And I feel like ever since then, there's been kind of an inverse relationship between, um, I guess, scientific knowledge and the trust and use of science in politics. What do you think, uh, what happened? <laughs> um, I, I don't know. I mean, it, and it goes back beyond uh Nixon. I mean, Teddy Roosevelt was, uh, you know, a great environmentalist that, you know, now we have Republicans that seem to, uh, not all, of course, but, but some that, that seem to think that taking care of the environment is somehow weak. <laughs> um, I don't, I, you know, I think you, you can't ignore the influence of money in politics and when you, you know, even look at members of the House Science Committee, uh, look at the Republican members and how much money they're taking from the fossil fuel industry, and their, you know, uh, just adamant defense of, of, or actually offense on uh, acting on climate change. I don't see how you can ignore that correlation. That makes sense. She's pleased that you say that. <laughs> that does make sense. Well, that's our show. Shaughnessy Naughton, thank you for, uh, for uh, so much for taking the time to hang out with us. Um, yeah, thank you. I'm excited personally, on a personal level, to see um, uh, w what science 
and scientists running for office and scientists being more engaged in politics, uh, what, what, um, what results that has, I'm, uh, I'm pretty optimistic. I, I, Last question, Dave. What? Can I jump in? I'm trying to end no, the it's, show. It's only kind of a question. Okay. Parting words. Parting words. What is one thing <laughs> that we or our listeners could do in the next week to oh, further this cause? That's a fantastic question. I know. Well, you can all go to uh, 314action.org and uh, sign up for our newsletter or sign up to volunteer. Um, we you know, are establishing, like I said, university chapters across the country as well as uh, putting in place state coordinators. And, um, you know, I think... Uh, everyone should be paying attention to what's happening, not just at the federal level, but at the at the state level as well, um, and calling their legislators. Uh, believe it or not, they answer the phone and they do pay attention to what people are saying. But if you don't call, they don't hear from you. Fantastic. That is how I should have ended the show. I got you. I got your back, Dave. <laughs> That's our show. Sean C. Naughton, thank you so much for taking the time to hang out with us today. Thanks a lot, Dave. Thanks, everyone. Take care. And thanks to you, Kelsey, Levi, Lisa, Mark, and Laura for being this week's co-hosts. And thank you, listeners, for making us part of your week. We know you have other internets you could insert into your auditory meatus, and we're glad you chose us. If you like what you heard today, consider sharing us with your colleagues. If you have a suggestion for something we could talk about, send it to theshortcoats at gmail.com or leave us a message at 347shortct and like our Facebook page, where every week I post shows, share thoughts, ask questions, and do other things like occasional live shows. This show is made possible by a generous donation by Carver College of Medicine Student Government and the Writing and Humanities Program. Our executive producer is Jason Lewis. Our opening music is by Dr. Vox and our closing music is by Argo Fox. Talk to you in one week.